It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. You're with us here on the Ideas Network. Coming up, researchers say there's a good chance that global temperatures will rise past a key threshold in just the next few years. A Wisconsin climate scientist tells us what that means. First, inflation has raised the price of most goods and services over the years, but one commodity has remained unaffected by economic fluctuations, costs the same today as it did in 1983. Vowels. Pat Sajak has been charging Wheel of Fortune contestants 250 bucks to buy a vowel for the last 40 years. But he announced this week that this upcoming season of the TV game show will be his last. His retirement marks the end of an era of longtime game show runs, completing a Mount Rushmore of hosts alongside Bob Barker, Alex Trebek, and Richard Dawson. The next generation of game show hosts like Drew Carey, Wayne Brady, and Steve Harvey aim to carry on that legacy as viewers await news of who's going to replace Sajak on Wheel and what could be next for Vanna White. We're talking about the cultural legacy of the television game show Past, Present, and Future, and you could join in at 800-642-1234. Are you now or have you ever been a fan of Wheel of Fortune? Do you watch a lot of TV game shows? Have things changed over the years since uh, watching them live maybe isn't such a thing anymore? Do you stream them ever? Call in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. Robert Thompson is a professor of television and pop culture and director of the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture at Syracuse University. Bob, welcome back to Central Time. Thank you for having me. Yeah, In the broadcast and media world, a 40-plus run of doing anything is pretty amazing. Could you look back at Pat Sajak's run on Wheel of Fortune here? Yeah, I mean, uh, and, you know, he wasn't even the first host. Chuck Willery did it for uh, like five, six years uh, before that. But even for game show hosts, which do have a tendency uh, to have long tenures, this was a significant uh, significant run. He starts on daytime, actually even earlier than uh, 41 years it'll be, uh, 1981. Vanna joins him in 82, and then they start their uh, primetime run the year uh, the year after that. Um, so he's he beat Bob Barker back uh, many years ago, and he's the longest running of all. What is the secret to a game show's success and longevity? Is it the game or is it the host? And maybe uh, in Vanna's case, uh, co-host. Well, I think it's a uh, complicated calculus and a number of uh, uh, different things. But we do know one thing, that games can survive their iconic uh, host's departure. Um, I remember, and this shows how far I go back, when Alex Trebek, who now we consider kind of the personification of the game Jeopardy!, um, when he first came on in the uh, early 1980s, uh, I had grown up with Jeopardy! with Art Fleming. And I resented this new interloper <laughs> in the Jeopardy uh, 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 space. And it took me a while to finally get uh, uh, get used to him. I did, of course. I thought there was no way Price is Right could go on after Bob Barker left. He had been doing that for so long. And sure enough, within a couple of weeks, it was as though nothing uh, had happened. Even uh, Alex Trebek, it seemed like uh, we could never, it would be almost blasphemous to give Jeopardy uh, then to uh, someone else. And people are getting used to it. So 
The host is important. You can't just put anybody into that slot. And Jeopardy tried that with a few uh, that didn't work. Um, on the other hand, the games, and most of the time they are incredibly simple, uh, seem to have an appeal that is now transcended. It's gone from radio to television to streaming. And uh, some of these old, simple formula games are still working really well for an audience. Now, they've got a little while to figure out who takes over for Pat Sajak. Some have talked about Vanna White. Uh, she has filled in for Sajak as the, the main host of the show. Uh, uh, Sajak's daughter, Maggie Sajak, Ryan Seacrest. I think Whoopi Goldberg put herself out there. Uh, what should be the process, do you think, for, for replacing a long-running host like Pat Sajak? I do like, and of course, there is a lot of talk about Vanna White, especially just talk among fans. Uh, and I do kind of like the idea of Vanna White becoming the host and then getting a guy to have to turn those letters for the next 41 years might be uh, kind of interesting. Um, it, you know, there's a, there's a number of ways one can do this. The, the new way is you do these auditions in front of everybody. Jeopardy did it and ended up, ended up making a bad decision, which they had to pull about a week uh, uh, into it. And that was ham handedly done. But there is an advantage to having this period of audition. One, you really get a sense what, what, what these people are like on a day-to-day, day-after-day basis. Uh, secondly, you get a sense of what uh, the audience likes. And thirdly, and this was especially important for with, with, with Trebek, is you get to have a little bit of time before uh, you bring new dad in to replace old dad. Um, uh, and I think that might uh, work. They were doing it, by the way, with Trevor Noah's replacement uh, on The Daily Show. Uh, they, they were into about their seventh guest host, and then the writer's strike kicked in. So they might do something like that, or they could, apparently they've already been talking to Seacrest. Uh, it could just be that uh, they make a decision and uh, bring someone in. But as you pointed out, we've got plenty of time to... Uh, come up with this decision because uh, he's not leaving till the end of the 2023-24 season. Oh, and then get this, Pat Sajak for three years is going to be a consultant to the show. <laughs> what the consultant to Wheel of Fortune actually means, <laughs> I would love to know, but that's what he's going to be. Talking to Robert Thompson with Syracuse University's Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture. Looking at game shows, Pat Sajak, long-running host of Wheel of Fortune, says it's going to be his last season. We're looking back on the rise, fall, rise, fall, and rise of game shows over the years. Call in at 800-642-1234, and you could win an all-expenses-paid vacation. To- oh, no, wait. Save that for the audition tape. Love to hear what you think, though, about your favorite game show. You're the game, the host, whatever of all time. If you've been a Wheel of Fortune fan, call in at 800-642-1234. Robert, I mentioned uh, game shows seem to have gone up and down in popularity. In the era of streaming TV, where do game shows sit now? Oh, they've still, uh, uh, there, there are game shows being put on uh, onto streaming. They're tending to be more these hybrids between game shows and reality. So courtship and competition uh, shows and that kind of thing. Uh, There is something about the old school broadcast game show that actually still works pretty well on old school broadcast television. ABC for many years now, especially during the summer, has been heavily uh, seeding their 
schedule to uh, game shows, many of them game shows that have been around for decades. Uh, and a lot of these game shows do go back to the radio era. So I think for you know, regular old-fashioned game shows, you can certainly stream reruns of them, but it still seems to be one of the few program types that streaming hasn't really completely taken over yet. And you mentioned, uh, Bob, the writer's strike coming up. Well, game shows are a format that don't necessarily rely on writers. Does that make them uh, maybe look like a good idea to a network executive right now? Well, of course, it it is a good idea for now because they've got to keep churning out uh, material. Uh, they do write. Uh, they do depend on writers. Somebody had to write the words that mm, came true. out of uh, Sajak's mouth. He was ad libbing some of it, but uh, you know he's got a teleprompter, and of course somebody has to write the questions. But it's a different uh, negotiating unit than the writers' strike that we're now experiences, which, which is why network TV went to so much reality and games um, back the last uh, the last time around. It it one almost forgets that this stuff does have to be written. Mm. There is a sense that if you're a good game show host, you give the illusion that you're just out there playing games with friends, like like you would play uh, parlor games. And uh, I think it's it's often, uh, it, it, the scripted nature of this stuff almost disappears in the mouth of a good game show host. We're talking to Syracuse University TV and pop culture professor Bob Thompson about game shows and the upcoming retirement of longtime Wheel of Fortune host Pat Sajak. Love to hear from you at 800-642-1234. Have you ever been a fan of TV game shows? Are you now? What is one you've particularly liked over the years? Is there one you miss? Do you have fond memories of sitting around with uh, family or friends or maybe headed to the bar to uh, play Jeopardy with uh, your fellow bar goers? Call it at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. You can also post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. We'll continue the conversation coming up here on Central Time. You're listening to Central Time on the Ideas Network. I'm Rob Ferrett. We're picking up our conversation with Bob Thompson, professor of television and pop culture at Syracuse University, with us today to look at the role TV game shows play in popular culture as Pat Sajak announced his retirement following the upcoming season of Wheel of Fortune. Still time for you to join in at 800-642-1234. What do you like or dislike about game shows? Do you still watch them in an era of TV streaming? Who would you want to see as the next host of Wheel of Fortune? Have TV game shows been a big part of your pop culture life at some point? Call in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or you could post on the Ideas Network Facebook page. We heard from James on Facebook. James writes, I'm not sure if game shows are a good fit for on-demand streaming, but despite the loss of Alex Trebek, Jeopardy is still going on strong. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit, uh, the, the way Jeopardy navigated uh, losing Alex Trebek? You touched on that a little, Bob. Is it still going strong? It is. I mean, it had a little uh, a wobble here and there, and I think that was the transitions that were uh, going on. But uh, it's still doing very, very well, usually the top-rated uh, show in syndication uh, of the week. And when I say top-rated, we should keep in mind that you know, these little game shows that have been around forever are getting Jeopardy can get 9 million 
uh, uh, viewers a week. Wheel of Fortune can get uh, uh, 8 million viewers a week. 60 Minutes gets more than that. Football gets more than that. And a couple of the procedural dramas uh, get more than that. But that's about it. Uh, 9 million viewers in 2023 is an enormous audience. Compare that to when uh, you know, classy shows like Mad Men were raking all their Emmys in, they were getting like 2 million viewers. Uh, so the, the, I guess it's a really long answer to say, yes, Jeopardy is still doing very well. And yes, they're going to replace Pat Sajak on Wheel of Fortune because that property is way too valuable to, to get rid of. By and the yet, way, I love how you pause between the words wheel of and fortune. Uh, I like someone who respects their craft. I, I don't know if I could not pause between Maybe the words not. wheel of fortune. Now, the other half of James's equation there is he doesn't see it as like a streaming on demand sort of thing. Have game shows tried to make nods to make themselves streamable or excerptable on YouTube or, you know, ways to reach audiences outside of that you know live broadcast? They, of course, invite you, uh, many uh, game shows, to uh, uh, engage with them on the app and on all of these other places. So all of these uh, things are trying to exist in all the space. I, I agree that streaming, there's certain things that are great for streaming and certain things that are that are not so great. And the game show didn't seem as appropriate back when you actually had to open up a computer and, uh, uh, you know, watch on your laptop and everything. With smart TVs and all of this completely integrated technology, uh, I think pretty soon there's going to be a huge uh, portion of the population that really doesn't know the difference. And unlike sports, where you really need to watch them live or they become irrelevant, that's not so much the case with a game show. We're not, when, when we were watching all of those various people break records on Jeopardy, Ken Jennings and uh, uh, all of the rest, uh, those had been taped a long time ago. So there, there was never that sense of uh, it being immediate. Even Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, when that was breaking all those rating mm. records in primetime, uh, had been pre-taped, so we already knew them. Um, so there isn't that sense like live sports, which is really hard to do on streaming, though that's changing and streaming is figuring it out. We had a caller at 800-642-1234 who couldn't stay on the line. Mike at Sparta says uh, it always seems like it's celebrities on game shows when he tunes in. He thought it was supposed to be about regular people. Now, there are often those celebrity editions of these, Bob, but the, the regular people, Jeopardies and Wheel of Fortunes are still the main, the flagships, right? Uh, if you consider the two big highest rated game shows, Wheel of Fortune and uh, Jeopardy, yes, they have celebrity editions, but it's mostly just uh, uh, regular people. The same is true of Price is Right, which is one of the last remaining uh, daytime shows. There are, however, a lot of programs now that are just like reality TV started out being about, quote unquote, real people in the real world. And pretty soon you had Ozzy Osbourne and his family and uh, uh, Jessica Simpson and on and on and on. Um, so we are seeing uh, more more celebrities in these uh, situations. And also replacement hosts tend to be now chosen from a body of already known uh, people. Uh, you had mentioned Wayne Brady. You'd mentioned uh, uh, um, uh, like Drew Carey. What's his name who took over from Pr Price is Right? Uh, Drew Carey. Drew Carey. Yeah, sorry. Uh, all those people already had an existence in uh, in uh, comes. 
or, or other places. And we're seeing a lot more of that. In the case of Jeopardy, half went to somebody who was known as a Jeopardy champion, but Mayim Bialik got the other half of that job, and she'd been not in one sitcom, but two, Blossom and Big Bang Theory. Talking to Bob Thompson from Syracuse University, professor there of television and pop culture, looking at game shows, past, present, and future, as Pat Sajak announces this will be his last season at Wheel of Fortune. You could join in with your game show questions, memories, favorites, least favorites, 800-642-1234 is the number. That's 800-642-1234. Michael joins us now in Appleton. Michael, hi. Hi, Rob. Uh, welcome back, uh, and thanks for taking my call. Um, I just wanted to uh, – one of the previous callers mentioned celebrity versions of game shows, and then I heard Jeopardy. Uh, and so my brain went straight to you, – you already know uh, – SNL's uh, Celebrity Jeopardy segments with uh, Will Ferrell playing Alex Trebek and uh, the late Norm MacDonald uh, <laughs> reoccurring as Burt Reynolds and Daryl Hammond as uh, – Sean Connery after Norm left. So, I, yeah, I just wanted to share and give everyone who's seen him a, a, a vicarious chuckle. Michael, thanks a lot uh, for bringing that up. And, Bob, I've watched a lot of those Saturday Night Live uh, Jeopardy, Celebrity Jeopardy versions, and it does speak to the place of the game show in popular culture, that they could be fodder uh, for such a long-running parody. It does. I mean, and think about today, if if all of these great shows and we've all, all got our favorite streaming shows, which are getting all the award nominations and are so brilliant. But if you went out and asked the next thousand people on the street to, you know, name a bunch of shows, they don't share the same shows. They might be watching Walking Dead, but they're not watching Game of Thrones. They might be watching Succession, but not Insecure virtually everybody in that group would know what you were talking about if you said Wheel of Fortune or Jeopardy. Even if you've never watched those shows, it's very hard to exist in this country without knowing of their existence. Um, and knowing of their existence to such an extent that some people to this day, when they are asked a question, they answer it in the form of a question, even if they're not playing Jeopardy. <laughs> I still measure 30 seconds by humming that Jeopardy song in the, in the back of my head. Let's go back to our callers. Uh, Sarah is with us in Libertyville, Illinois. Sarah, hi. Well, hi there. What wow. Is... So I was casting my mind back to what I liked when I was little, and game shows were just so different then, at least there were some. And we loved to watch Password and like $10,000 Pyramid. And Password, especially when I was little, was just such a cool show. And you really had to think. And they had all these celebrities, and especially Lucille Ball. I remember her so well. She was really old, but she was just really funny and really good at it. And it's just a great memory of Lucille Ball. Sarah, thanks a lot for that call. I think, I can't remember if it was Password or The Pyramid, uh, where you'd have the celebrity partnered with a real person. I don't know if anybody does that anymore, Bob. Password and Pyramid. Both of them did. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the the caller was talking this this um this very warm feeling we seem to get about remembering game shows of our of our youth, and I think part of that is that game shows tended to be on in the daytime, which means that your biggest experiences of game shows as a kid 
were when you were in the glorious state of being home from school, <laughs> either sick, either pretending to be sick or on vacation. So already when you were watching a game show, you were doing something that was extra special, doing something during the day uh, when you're not at school. And I think if I think back of my whole, all my television memories as a kid, the game shows are the ones that seem the most nostalgic, almost melancholy, sentimental, um, because they do have that uh, uh, that domestic glow to them. Uh, I remember Lucy on Password and Betty White on Password. Uh, I remember when Password was still black and white, and they used to <laughs> physically change partners by walking in front of the um, uh, the camera. Uh, I remember that fondly, but not as fondly as Chuck Barris on the gong show who brought the game show, of course, to the age of Dada. Thanks again for that call. Bob, what are you watching for now for the future of game shows? Not just wheel, but uh, the genre. The genre seems to have gone in two directions. Number one is this more competitive, reality-based, uh, big production value kind of uh, uh, things, big challenges and having to go over rivers and all that kind of uh, uh, stuff. The other thing, though, that I think is most interesting and probably most enduring is absolutely old-fashioned, old titles, the same games with just new hosts. Um, it, it's ex extraordinary how the most successful of the game shows are one. I mean, ABC in the last couple of summers have been redoing To Tell the Truth. They redid The Match Game. Um, uh, all of these th things that were game shows of my childhood are now uh, uh, new ones. And I think it's one of those genres that really has a long, long, long shelf life. Who Wants to Be a Millionaire that debuted in this country in 1999 was in essence 21 and the $64,000 question with a little bit different furniture. Bob, we'll leave it there. Thanks for joining us again today. My pleasure. Thank you. That was fun. That's Robert Thompson, professor of television and pop culture and director of the Blyer Center for Television and Popular Culture at Syracuse University. He's with us today to look at the cultural legacy of television game shows as Pat Sajak announced his upcoming retirement after 40-plus years from Wheel of Fortune. You can keep sharing your thoughts on game shows over on the Ideas Network Facebook page or email ideas at WPR.org. Coming up after the news, a climate scientist explains how a likely 1.5 degree increase in global temperatures passing that threshold would impact people and the environment. I'm Rob Ferret. This is Central Time here on the Ideas Network. You're listening to Central Time. I'm Rob Verrett. Coming up, summer's a great season for giving, getting involved, and volunteering, including lots of walkathons and other seasonal events. An expert on philanthropy gives us some advice on helping our communities in the summer months. Now, scientists say there's a 66% chance that global temperatures will increase by 1.5 degrees Celsius in the coming half decade, three times the chance predicted just a few years ago in 2020. If it happens, that'll be the first time that one and a half degrees Celsius threshold is broken. That's been seen as a target to avoid in international climate negotiations. Sustaining those temperatures could raise the risk of dangerous weather events, including heat waves, rising sea levels and wildfires. 
You could join the conversation at 800-642-1234. What do you want to know about how increasing temperatures could affect you? Have you been impacted by climate change? What, if any, actions do you want to see taken to prevent further warming? Call 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234 or email ideas at WPR.org. Daniel Weimont is a professor of atmospheric and oceanic sciences and former director of the Nelson Institute Center for Climatic Research at UW-Madison. Dan, welcome back to Central Time. Hi, thanks. It's good to be here. I want to talk about that one and a half degree number uh, relative to what? I want to situate that as we start. Yeah, that's that's good. So first of all, that uh, the number that was reported in that uh, in the WMO, the World Meteorological Organization document, uh, that's relative to the global mean temperature, uh, uh, sort of a pre-industrial, so 1850 to 1900 average. So that's kind of a, a time period that represents um, uh, a time when uh, before a lot of global warming or human-induced global warming uh, started drastically affecting our global temperature record. And that's a little different than what we typically use. We typically talk about the 1900 to, to the, or the, the, the 20th century average. When we look at what global temperatures have been over the last bunch of decades, in general, right, they've been higher than that benchmark, that late 1800s benchmark, in, uh, and inching upward over time. Is that about the right trend? Oh, yeah, yeah. They've been way above that benchmark. In fact, the warmest year in the 20th, century was 1998 and that was a year after a big el nino event uh and uh that year was um uh, i think it was about uh eight tenths of, or six tenths of a degree warmer than than the, the average over that uh over the 20th century uh in 2012 we left that behind we'll never be that cold again so uh we're definitely um we're, we're definitely well above the 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 uh average temperature for the 20th century. You mentioned El Nino, and that's part of the story here of why there's this prediction we'll hit this one and a half degree number uh, sooner rather than later. We've been in the other thing, La Nina weather patterns. Can you talk about those patterns and why they affect that overall global temperature? Yeah, so El Nino is a uh, is a phenomenon that occurs in the tropical Pacific, and it may seem like that's very distant from uh, Wisconsin, uh, but keep in mind that the tropical Pacific is the largest ocean basin on Earth, and it, it affects uh, uh, an area that, that's just enormous. So it, uh, the Pacific covers uh, an enormous part of our Earth. Um, so when an El Nino occurs, there's warming in the in the equatorial region of the sea surface temperatures across the entire Pacific. It's a complete reorganization of the heat content in the tropical Pacific. It's the biggest thing naturally that can happen on year-to-year timescales to our climate system. When we see these El Nino events, we tend to see uh, global mean temperatures that spike after an El Nino event. So 1998 was the warmest year in the, uh, uh, in the, in the 20th century. And that was a year after the big 1997-98 El Nino event. 2016 has been is the is the current record global temperature, and that was the year after the 2015-2016 El Nino event. Uh, and so, what, what they're um, pointing to with this expectation that will exceed the 1.5 degrees Celsius mark is the idea that we're likely to have another big El Nino event sometime in the next few years. 
Put that on top of the gradually warming temperatures and the chance of exceeding 1.5 degrees Celsius is pretty high. Now, people might hear 1.5 degrees. You know, if the room I'm in goes up one and a half degrees Fahrenheit or Celsius, I probably won't notice it. Why is this a big deal globally, though? Yeah, there's a couple of reasons. One, that 1.5 degree benchmark has been something that was set uh, during the Paris, uh, Paris Accord, I believe. That was a, a benchmark that... Um, is, is a is a number we don't want to exceed. The number of sort of bad impacts uh, just continues to increase the more warming we we experience. Uh, to put that in perspective, you know, uh, coming inside from a cold day into a warm uh, you know warm house is a lot more than one and a half degrees Celsius. But if we look in the historical time period, one and a half degrees Celsius is actually a, a large a large warming, and it's happening very quickly. So since the last ice age, we've warmed by maybe four to six degrees Celsius. And that's that's occurred over, you know, 14,000 years. Uh, um, but we're seeing this warming occurring over a matter of decades. And that's way that's much too fast for systems to adjust to it. And so that's what the, the, the rate of the warming is something that is uh, certainly um, is one of the reasons why we're why that number takes on sort of a new significance. Talking to Daniel Vimont, Professor of Atmospheric and Oceanic Sciences at UW-Madison, looking at the latest uh, worries, latest predictions about climate change and the impact it could have on us. You can join in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Let's bring out a caller now. Marcus is with us in Milwaukee. Marcus, hi. Uh, hi. So this doesn't take into consideration any of the feedback loops, such as like what's burning currently in Canada and uh, I guess my question um, is two-part. Uh, one, what are they planning, you know, how are they going to start taking some of the stuff into consideration? And number two, by having um, an oil company executive from the UAE run this thing, isn't that kind of the equivalent of having, like, Michael Corleone or Al Capone run a, a commission on crime to try and lower crime rates? Uh, UAE running which organization, Marcus? No, they, they have an oil executive that is going to be chairing this upcoming Cobb uh, Com. Um, in the United Arab Emirates. Gotcha. Marcus, thanks a lot for the call. First of all, Dan, his uh, thoughts on feedback loops. I hear things like, uh, you know, maybe methane thawing in uh, tundra-type regions. Is there a concern that if we hit some threshold, things could spiral even faster? Certainly. Uh, a lot of these feedbacks are taken into account. So, uh, you know, our climate models and our, our uh, um, uh, analyses do uh, take into account feedbacks with, um, uh, say, bio, some biological cycles, so ocean biogeochemistry, um, uh, certainly things like water vapor feedbacks and so forth. So when you talk about feedbacks in general, um, a lot of that is accounted for in the models that, that we use uh, to project uh, climate change. In the next couple of years, uh, the, we're still going to be dominated by the anthropogenic uh, signal, you know, as we continue to warm, uh, these these are issues. So you're raising a really good point here. Uh, you know, we need to understand um, uh, fluxes uh, from the land surface, especially in polar regions, as polar regions start to thaw out uh, or, or continue to thaw out. Polar regions have been accelerating uh, quite a bit, um, and, and these are these are things that uh, that we need to better understand. Um, I would say that, you know, we're certainly not ignoring these, uh, but but the uh, the uncertainties with those are large.
Let's start to get into some of the impacts now. We won't we can't always say this change in climate is going to produce this change in weather in this part of the world, but what kind of things does it put it at more of a risk of? Yeah, uh, so with more with more warming, um so around here in in, in Wisconsin, uh we'll, we'll see a lot more uh extreme uh warm days and nights. I mean, that's sort of a, a, an obvious one. Um, and, and again, you know, we talk about an individual day or weather events as, as having these large fluctuations. Uh, but when you exceed certain, uh, certain values, there's, there's, uh, various impacts, for example, hot days, uh, heat, heat, uh, is a, is a big impact for public health and hot nights are even more of an impact for public health. We've seen in Wisconsin uh, trends in nighttime temperatures uh, with warming nighttime temperatures exceeding uh, the warming daytime temperatures. And so if you can't sleep at night, it exacerbates all kinds of health issues. And so we expect to see more issues associated with uh, um, heat stress and human health there. Um, Changes to ecosystems, uh, warming temperatures uh, affect lakes in different ways. Uh, It can increase, for example, stratification, uh, meaning uh, how uh, the amount of, which affects mixing, like in in the uh, Great Lakes. So we might see more uh, harmful algal blooms in in our Great Lakes, uh, more sort of anoxic uh, conditions. Uh, everything from that to changes in wildlife, uh, wildlife migrations, changes in habitat, reductions in the snowfall and snow, uh, the, the characteristics of the snow season here in, in Wisconsin, which will impact tourism and, and so forth. Um, so the, the impacts are, are really varied uh, and they're, they're all over the place. Uh, and then certainly globally, we see uh, uh, impacts to reducing biodiversity, extinction of various species, um, you know, loss of coral reefs, just uh, all sorts of all sorts of impacts. We're talking to Dan Vimont, professor of atmospheric and oceanic sciences and former director of the Nelson Institute Center for Climatic Research at UW-Madison, looking at an international prediction of average global temperatures crossing this one and a half degree increase threshold over the next few years. You can join in at 800-642-1234. Do you have questions for our guest about some of the science behind climate change, about the impact it could have? Have you experienced those impacts yourself? What steps do you want to see taken to try to slow things down? Call in at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Or email ideas at WPR.org. We'll pick up the conversation coming up on Central Time. It's Central Time. I'm Rob Ferrett. We're picking up our talk about climate change and what a one and a half degree increase, so this relative to the late 1800s, would mean. Dan Vimont stays with us, professor of atmospheric and oceanic sciences and former director of the Nelson Institute Center for Climatic Research at UW-Madison. You can join in with your thoughts, your questions at 800-642-1234. That's 800-642-1234. Let's go back to your calls now with Brian in Madison. Brian, hi. Hi. I just wanted to ask, you know, uh, climate change has been one of the most important issues to me my entire life. And things are just consistently getting worse. And it really doesn't seem like our larger government systems, economic models care. So I just wanted to ask the guests, um, what do you do to avoid climate despair? That's a really good question. Yeah, thanks, Brian. Um, Go ahead, Dan. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a really good question. I think um, so. First of all, thanks for you know, thanks for what you're doing. Uh, and actually, I know there's a lot of call, a lot of listeners out there who are you know, trying to do their part in in reducing their their impact and their footprint. And that's great. Uh, that's that's you know, you're 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 doing great work. Uh, so that's one thing to remember. Um, you know, when you study this every day, um, there's always this uh, there's always this um, kind of two-sided uh, uh, response to it. It's kind of like when you see a, a for, for me as a, as a climate scientist or as a, someone who studies fluid dynamics, you know, you see a hurricane developing and you think to yourself, wow, that's an amazing looking hurricane. And, uh, and then, you know, you look at the track, and you see that it's going to come right across Puerto Rico, or then you see that it's going to come right across Granada and, and it hits you in a, in a, in a real serious way. So to me, it's uh, I have a little bit of a different relationship with it in that I love thinking about the math and the science and the physics of the climate system. And every time I learn something new, I get excited about it. Um, and and uh, at the same time, I look at the I look at the, the you know, what's going on. And, and you're right. We're not the amount of action that is needed and the scale of what needs to happen in order to uh, reduce this is way beyond uh, what we are dealing with at this, at this point. Uh, and so we, we do need, um, massive coordinated efforts, uh, to try and, uh, re reduce, uh, reduce climate change. The good news is, is that, you know, all of us are impacted in different ways, uh, but all of us can do something. All of us can, uh, it, it there's no one solution to this. There's hundreds of solutions and it's not like, hundred any one of those would work all of them are needed uh and so anything you're doing is going to help if you can you know next time you get a car think about switching to a, a electric vehicle uh you know if you're not already um uh you know uh, if you're not already getting your your electricity from renewable sources uh, sign up for those programs mg&e is committed to going uh, uh carbon neutral or uh, uh zero emissions uh, in the next, I think, couple of decades, which is, you know, uh, which is good uh, as well. So think about the things you can do, especially one-time things you can do. You know, are you gonna, if you're buying a new, if you're moving somewhere, can you move near your work where you can bike all the time? Not only does it reduce your carbon emissions, but it also, being on your bike is fun. It, it's, it's good for your health. It's good to get out. You see other people. It's good for your social health. It's good for, you know, there's all kinds of these benefits, these co-benefits to doing something about this. So, and so, and, and now I'm, I'm dragging on here, but uh, I, I also want to address this, this point that you, you said that uh, our economies are not, not acting fast enough. Now I want to get away from this idea that I want us to get away as a society from this idea that it's going to cost us a lot and that will be painful. Let's think about opportunities. Every dollar we spend on, on uh, fossil fuel in Wisconsin is a dollar we send out of this state because we don't harvest any fossil fuels in Wisconsin. Instead of that, if, we're, if we are developing renewable technologies, if we, uh, if we embrace this, then you know, that's a benefit for our manufacturing uh, economy here in Wisconsin. There are, it, it, it brings jobs, it improves health, uh, it improves quality of life. There's all kinds of opportunities we have to try and reduce uh, um, our, um, 
our, uh, uh, the, the amount of climate change that we'll, ex that we'll, we'll experience. And we need to be talking about that. Thanks again for that call at 800-642-1234. I'm not sure if this is a story you've been following, Dan, but our caller earlier mentioned and a couple other callers have raised it. Uh, this uh, The COP28 conference coming up, the president is, in fact, uh, someone who runs an oil company, the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, uh, concerns about having fossil fuel people uh, at the head of a climate change conference. Is that something you're watching at all or are you focusing on the science more? I have to admit, I, I am focusing more on the science. And the one thing I will say is that as uh, as scientists, uh, I don't think we're going to be swayed by anybody who's uh, uh, running running a conference. So the science will uh, will continue. And we've seen that through, uh, you know, attacks on climate science over the last uh, 40 years, 50 years, uh, that that despite despite the political scene, uh, we, we know a lot more about climate change. Um, and even, even though the basic, the, the basic science has been known for since the, the mid 1800s, late 1800s, Eunice Foote, uh, a, uh, a woman who, um, looked at the impact of, of, uh, carbon dioxide on temperatures back in the 1800s, um, uh, to present, um, We've, we've known the science for a while, but we continue to progress. We continue to improve our knowledge. Uh, what we need is what we need is action in the political uh, scene. Let's go back to our callers now. Peter is with us in Racine. Peter, hello. Hello, thanks. Uh, yeah, nobody seems to be talking about geothermal. That's how a nuclear power plant works. They heat up the water uh, and then they run a turbine. You can get hot water just going down into the ground. You don't have to go all the way down to a ma the magma, the lava, like a volcano. And then uh, there should be special roads for lightweight vehicles. I think there's one in Milwaukee that's special just for bicycles. Peter, I gotcha. Thanks for the call. Peter bringing up a geothermal energy, Dan, uh, as part of the uh, energy uh, sources we could use there. How big a difference, uh, whether it's geothermal or other sources, would going to non-fossil fuel uh, sources make to uh, our, our carbon emissions and, and to hitting that one and a half degrees Celsius target we've been talking about? That's a great question. Uh, so geothermal is certainly part of a solution there. Uh, when we look at, I encourage people to check out Project Drawdown. And so the, the data I'm talking about here comes from that. Currently about uh, a third of the sources of, of, um, of uh, carbon dioxide comes from the electricity generation sector. Uh, so shifting that completely over to uh, wind turbines and utility scale solar uh, pro uh, solar uh, or distributed solar would uh, is one way to um, is probably the most uh, effective way of reducing um, uh, the amount of uh, carbon emissions that comes from uh, say coal plants or methane uh, power power plants. Um, efficiency gets us a little bit, improving efficiency, uh, gets us a little bit, but probably about a third of our emissions, uh, you know, could be addressed in that way. Um, but that's only a third, you know, we have a tremendous amount of opportunity in the food, uh, and agriculture sector, especially addressing food waste. If you're eating a, you know, think about, uh, think about switching towards plant-based diets. We've been, uh, you know, here at home, uh, my wife has been, my wife, who's a fantastic cook, by the way, uh, <laughs> has started cooking a lot more vegan uh, meals. And, and 
they're delicious. I mean, especially around here, you've got all these gr- this great produce in uh, in Wisconsin. Um, get down to your farmer's market, buy local, take a look at some of the the wonderful things they've got and and start experimenting with some fun new uh, ways of eating. Uh, so removing meat from your uh, meat based, uh, you know, not you don't have to completely remove eventually, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see some big changes, but just give it a try. Start start along that path and see where it takes you. Uh, there's a lot of other uh, options there as well, from uh, industry to improving building efficiency and thinking about how we use buildings, uh, and then the transportation sector as well. So there's a lot, uh, you know, that that geothermal uh, is is uh, maybe a great solution in some places, um, and and as I said, there's there's hundreds of solutions. There isn't one of them that will do the job but all of them are needed. So if you're thinking geothermal, if that's something that works for you, go for it. You know, if you're thinking of trying to change your diet, go for it, give it a shot, start trying these things. Look at, look at project drawdown. And, and that's how, that's how we'll change. Dan, we'll leave it there. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks a lot. That's Dan Vimont, professor of atmospheric and oceanic sciences, former director of the Nelson Institute uh, Center for Climatic Research at UW-Madison. He talked to us about some of the latest research showing we may soon hit a climate threshold we don't want to hit in the next few years. Coming up tomorrow on The Morning Show with Kate Archer-Kent, find out about the unique mental health needs of seniors and an aging population, what kind of resources are out there, and join in with your experiences and your questions. That's coming up tomorrow morning at 7 here on the Ideas Network. It's an exciting time of year here at Central Time. Longtime listeners know that I am a big fan of a particular live nature camera at Catmate National Park in Alaska. You can watch the bears at a small waterfall as they fatten up on salmon to get ready for the winter. Well, here's the news. The camera goes live each year sometime in the second half of June. So I've been checking in every day. And now they've got the countdown up. The Brooks Falls camera is scheduled to go live at 11 a.m. Central Time tomorrow. Then we can all keep tabs on the brown bears of Katmai National Park over the next few months, culminating in Fat Bear Week in October, where you can vote on the bear that did the best job of fattening up for the winter. Find that bear cam online. Just search for Brooks Falls Bear Cam and watch this space for updates. Bear news you can use. This is Central Time.